Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 66. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we would really like to collect that. And we'll pray for you this week. Thank you for sharing uh, those uh, requests. And um, pray that uh, God would minister to the needs of your life as we seek him together. Every year, the year of the Bible, God wrote a book and it deserves our full attention. We make much of the Bible in church life here. And for good reason. Uh, So for over 20 years, I've been offering this challenge at the beginning of each year uh, for the congregation to embrace a a Bible reading program, a plan uh, to bring the scripture into your life, Uh, the best Bible reading plan, and they abound. Google it and you'll have more choices than you can ever imagine. I've often joked they even have one for left-handed bowlers. I mean, you could find a a Bible reading program... uh, they abound. Uh, so whether you want to tackle the New Testament or read the, the full Bible, just bringing the scripture into your life for God to speak to you uh, from it, to hear it, to read it, to redeem your commute, to bring it into your mind as you begin your day and as you end your day, studying it, memorizing it, and meditating upon it day and night. At the heart of this message really is an earnest plea for us to take action to bring the scripture into our life. I think one of the uh, deadliest presumptions in the Christian life is that somehow we're, we know it when we need to be refreshed by it uh, regularly. We need to be reminded. God commands us to, to, to bring scripture into our life in these ways. To hear it, read it, study it, Memorize it, meditate upon it. This is a, a, a command of God. In 2 Timothy 2, um, Paul writes to Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God that you, need, uh, that you would be a workman that um, is above reproach. It strengthens us in times of temptation. You're neglecting the scripture. You're not receiving the, the means that God has given for us to be strengthened. We're called to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Putting on the full armor of God and in that list of armor is uh, the two-edged sword, which is the sword of the Spirit. It strengthens us in times of temptation. It prepares us for, for a witness. It prepares us to give a witness for Jesus Christ in our generation it, it shows us that our resources really drain quickly and we, we realize that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. It comforts us in a time of discouragement. I was thinking of Psalm 42 recently. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for he reigns and he can be trusted. And when we come to the scripture, it tunes our heart for worship. It tunes our heart to join the psalmist in praise. It tunes our heart to approach the text like Ezra, when we read the book of Ezra, in a full spectrum of application. The greatest investment of your life is to be a man or woman of the Bible. It's the most neglected resource of our generation. Nothing communicates the pride and the hubris of our present cultural climate as does the regard uh, of, of the culture to the Word of God. 
thinking that we're the only generation who's ever lived and has ever had a clever thought. And yet the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The grass may wither, the flower may fade, but the word of God abides forever. And you would do well, very well, to commit your life to being familiar with it and embracing it and cherishing it. Um, so what we're talking about here is beginning with a time, a set time every day. I'm hoping that you have heard and received the challenge sufficiently to where when, you're he- when your feet hit the floor, you're thinking, Lord, I need to be in your word. Before email, before I check my computer, I need to hear from you. And I need to seek your face. Um, to focus on the content, not the amount. To be accountable to someone. And we have lots of ways for that to happen in church life. And your connect group. Pray for your teacher. Be involved and faithful in your connect group. Uh, Bible drill. Um, When all is said and done, when children and youth grow up in this church, what do we want them to leave with? Uh, Having memorized the scripture so it's in their heart and on their minds, we pray. Our children's ministry, bringing the scripture into your daily conversation, seeking to apply what you read, taking your fighter verse and saying, okay, I'm going to receive that challenge. I haven't memorized much, but I'm going to begin this year. And I just can't think of a better chapter than Romans chapter 8. These are just some ways that we offer that challenge and that we would be a church that thinks this way. And we would be like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Do you love the word of God? Do you love the scriptures? Are they life to you? That is certainly true or should be true of every believer. There are good and strong reasons for making such a commitment. The Bible's promises for those who do is a promise of success which may make us a little nervous. What do you mean by that? Well, only what God said to Joshua when he said, if you meditate upon this word day and night, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. As he was facing the challenge of leading Israel into the promised land, God said, don't go in without my word. Don't let it depart from you in any way. And then Psalm 1, the godly man The godly woman meditates upon his word day and night and shall be like a tree planted by the streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season and whatever he does shall prosper. This meditating, this thinking over the scripture. I was thinking of the basic questions in in the Baptist Catechism. How do we know there is a God? Answer, the light of nature and man. And the works of God, creation, plainly declare that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for our salvation. What is the word of God? The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments being given by divine inspiration, God breathed, are the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And then finally, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Isn't that the question? The Bible evidences itself by the doctrines it presents, the unity of its parts, and the power to convert sinners and to build up the church of God. These are reasons, theological reasons, that we look to the Scripture. God wrote a book. That's what Christians believe. God wrote a book. 
all scripture is God breathed and is given so that we might be equipped, edified, strengthened, fully equipped for every good work. And so I have brought to your attention Isaiah 66 this morning. And it begins by God saying, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is how big I am. Everything you see, I've created. And then he closes by saying, I'm not impressed by what you, what you build for me. I think of Psalm 50, where uh, Asaph is talking about God. Um, if, if God says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? I would not tell you because you can't, you can't meet our needs, my, my needs. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, the prophet writes about a future day of blessing for the people of God. The greatest blessing of all is entering into the presence and glory of God. And Isaiah identified in his preaching the danger of loving externals. For, for them, it would be loving the temple, loving Jerusalem, loving um, their heritage. And so he identifies the danger of loving the externals like the ark and the temple. Of course, both were built by God's command and had an important place in the worship of God's people, but they were not the reality. God's the reality. Amen. And those who truly know him and love him worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Bible reveals that there is a God who is above all and over all. And from Genesis to Revelation, we read a unified message that reveals who God is and what he has done and what he requires of us, how we are to live and what lies ahead in the future. Indeed, God wrote a book and it demands our full attention. So I want to do something this morning. I want to come back to Isaiah 66 but I want to hold up for you seven reasons that you should give your life to the scripture. And I pray that the outline in the insert as we work through that together today would be maybe something you could use in a witnessing conversation. Someone asks you, how come you believe in the Bible or what do you believe? And for you to have opportunity to say over lunch or coffee or whatever, this is why I believe the Bible's true. Ready? I'm putting the wrench to the fire hydrant and pulling this way. Here we go. First, God speaks. We know that from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light in verse 3. And there was light. And God spoke the animal world into existence. And he created Adam and then Eve the psalmist said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by their hosts, by the breath of his mouth. Sometimes God spoke with people on earth. He spoke to Adam in the garden. He spoke to Noah and gave him instructions concerning the building of the ark. Uh, he spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses face to face as one would speak to a friend. And maybe you're thinking, ah, if God would speak to me that way, I'd follow him forever. But the scripture is very clear to say that those in Jesus Christ have more than Abraham and Moses and the others ever had. They longed for the day that God's promise would come in the Messiah and that they might know him because the spirit of God would dwell in them in the new covenant. 
The Word of God is also presented in the person of His Son. Sometimes the Bible refers to the Son of God as the Word of God. In fact, in John chapter 1, in the prologue of John's Gospel, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he credits the Son of God, the Word of God, as being instrumental in creating everything that we see in verse 3. And then he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in a unique instance in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is called the Word of God, the Word made flesh. The Son of God is referred to as the Word of God. So... I find it interesting when some people say, you know, if God would only speak to me, I might believe in him. That's an outrageous statement in my mind. When God has spoken so powerfully through his creation, when God has spoken so eloquently through his word, and when God has spoken to us in flesh through his son, to say... God doesn't speak. He is. He speaks. If you would have ears to hear. Secondly, God promises. God's a God who promises great things, wonderful things. And the way he set forth these promises is by way of covenant. Um, with Adam, some Theologians have, I think, rightly have placed God's relationship with Adam in a covenant of works relationship. Um, since participation in the blessings of the covenant clearly depended on obedience from Adam or works on Adam's part, um, Adam didn't keep that covenant well. He broke that covenant and it set in force other covenants to come. So in Genesis 12, God would call Abraham to build a nation and that this nation would be the means by which God would bless all the nations of the world. And he called Abraham and Abraham went to the land that God showed him. And he said, from your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And interestingly, when Paul picks up this theme of Abraham being the father of the faithful, that he, was, he believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Paul mentions this in Galatians that if we are in Christ, we are of Abraham's seed. God fulfilled his covenant to Abraham. God fulfilled the Mosaic covenant with regard to the coming of Christ. God established a covenant with Moses, which was specifically given to Israel. And um, he gave commandments and ordinances and laws that would govern the nation of Israel and are for our benefit. And then he gave the Davidic covenant when he said to David that from your seed there will be one to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. And that's why the New Testament begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And then... In just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table where we are reminded of the new covenant, which is the only covenant that is operative today. There's no side covenants. There's no side deals. 
Uh, it's, it's the new covenant. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, it's through the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we take of the bread and we remember him giving over his body for us. And when we drink of the cup and we remember him shedding his blood for us. There's no other way to God except through him. God promises great things. He's also promised that he's coming back again. Jesus Christ is coming back again. We don't know the hour or the time, but may we be found doing our Father's business until he comes. He's coming back again. And we get a glimpse in the book of Revelation of a kingdom realized. All the promises of God being yes in Christ Jesus. And he gathers his people saved to sin no more in the presence of God forever and ever and ever to live life as it's intended to be lived, redeemed by the grace of God. Thirdly, God commands. God commands. He has every right to command. He created everything, therefore he owns it. He has the right to establish what is right and what is wrong. He he has full authority to speak into your life and mine on how we're to live and that we would be held accountable to him for that. He commands things. How do you regard the commandments of God when you think about God's commandments and maybe some of them come to your mind right away? How do you regard those commands? Are they a hassle to you? Are they a burden to you? Or are they life-giving to you? Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh Lord, how I love your law. It's a schoolmaster that leads me to Christ. I love your word. God commanded Adam. You can have all the trees in the garden, Adam. Enjoy them freely. But that tree you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. That was a command. And commands tend to provoke the human flesh the human heart, from speed limits to guidelines to provisions. We tend to want to push back on any kind of standard God commands. He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the nation of Israel. Do you know them? You should. No other gods, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't be a liar, and don't covet what your neighbor has. And God gave that to Israel, and it serves as a moral law even to this moment because it's reiterated again in the New Testament, those commands are. The Sabbath, I believe, redefined as our Sabbath rest in Christ. But God commands. How are you with God's commands? When it comes to your life, when it comes to the dictates of your heart, when you read his commands concerning giving, do you bristle? When he says, honor me with your your income, honor me with your tithes and your offerings, do you bristle at that? Or do you say, wait a minute, who am I to curl my lip before the God who reigns? When it comes to sexual sins, and as I interact with Christians far and wide, I'm just amazed at how 
even those in the church have no regard for what God has said about fornication, about homosexuality, about adultery, and we want to redefine everything? How are you with God speaking into your life about your moral purity? Don't get mad at me. That's not what this is about. This is about God's commands. What He has said. We can rationalize and dismiss. And not only that, I'm reminded of a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. Ungodliness. A total misrepresentation of our life before God. To embrace things He hates. To live an ungodly life. Without regard to His commands. Without reverence to His person. Anxiety and frustration, Bridges notes. Discontentment, ingratitude, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, anger and the weeds of anger, envy and jealousy and the related sins that come out of that, the whole issue of our speech and everything that comes out of our tongue worldliness, loving this world system. When we're told not to love the world, neither the things in the world, for all that's in the world, it's passing away. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. And learning to confront these sins that we often tolerate. How can, what hope do we have of putting them aside to see God's call in a great, with greater clarity except through the scriptures? I'm reminded of 1 John 5.3 where John says his commandments are not burdensome to us. That's what I want to appeal to in your life and mine when it comes to issues of obedience before God that we remember he's a God who commands. He's not left us in the dark but has given to us his word as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and to listen to Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded lots of things. In fact, at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, heaven opened up and God spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Do you listen to him? Or do you read your Bible selectively, the parts you like, but ignore other things that are straightforward that may be exactly what you need? Number four, God judges. God judges. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they were expelled from the garden. The mercy and the speechless wonder is that they weren't executed on the spot. But Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and fellowship with God was fractured from that point to this very moment. You want to know why the world's messed up? It goes back to the garden and the tree and the disobedience. And fellowship was fractured. This world is a broken world. Your life and my life is broken. We need a redeemer. Jesus Christ is that redeemer. He judged Cain when he killed his brother Abel. And he bore a mark all the days of his life. He he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged Ananias and Sapphira. He judged the nation of Israel by taking them into captivity. He judged Judah by allowing them to go into Babylon, into captivity. Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
The Bible tells us in two locations, Romans 14 and Revelation 20, that we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, for it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We have an appointment before the judge of the universe to give an account of everything that we've done. The Bible says the books will be opened and with impeccable, impeccable accuracy, the details of our life are kept by an eternal God who knows everything and sees everything and we'll have to give an account for them. What hope do we have as we stand before the judge of the universe? And that brings the gospel to us as our living hope that we have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, that he is our representation before the Father. He has absorbed the wrath of God on the cross on our behalf and is a righteous payment for our sins. God judges. Can I tell you something else he does, number five? God saves. <laughs> he saves. I just started laughing this morning when I was thinking about that, that point. He saves. The gap created by sin beginning with Adam has been bridged through the work of Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. No other name has been given to us by which we may be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Well, saved from what? That is the question, isn't it? Saved from what? Saved from, from hell. Eternal judgment. It's a beautiful word. If you see yourself as lost. You chafe under it. If you don't. And for the rest of your life, you'll sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, if you've been saved by this grace found in Christ Jesus alone. What must I do to be saved? Asked the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but unto us which are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Timothy 2.4, which speaks to God's disposition, it says, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The saving disposition of God is that sinners would re repent and turn to him. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, Paul wrote, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. God saves. The question I think that's most important this morning in your life is, has he saved you? Have you come to God on, on his terms? Since he speaks and he promises and he commands and he judges and he sets the terms of what salvation is, have you come to him on, on his terms? Notice with me, sixthly, God reigns. He reigns. 
As R.C. Sproul said many years ago, there's no radical mo molecule in the universe that's going to upend his, his, his reign. Psalm 2 says that he sits in heaven, the heavens, and he laughs at those who scoff at him. It's a laugh of derision. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And sometimes we, we think that history or our lives and, and, a, and a microcosm of all that's going on around us think it's careening out of control. It's not. The Bible assures us that he's bringing history to a conclusion in Christ. All things will be summed up in him. He reigns. It's not the devil and Jesus having a tug of war and by golly, we hope Jesus wins. That's not it at all. We, we read the end of, of the tempter and the adversary. He's thrown in a lake of fire forever and ever and ever. But now he roams the earth just for a short time. The Bible presents God in charge of everything. Jesus said in his parting words to the disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's one of the reasons you would want to align yourself and come under the authority of Christ. He has all authority and he will have the last word. God reigns. And let's close with this, shall we? God fulfills. He fulfills his promises. He's gathering a people for his glory. Recently I read again Revelation 21 where it speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. He's fulfilling this promise. He will fulfill this promise as he's fulfilled every promise he's ever given. In Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every what? Every tear. And death shall be no more. So I think a question that comes to my mind is, how, how will you be among that number? How will you be among that number? And I think that that brings us back to the gospel. I mentioned Isaiah 66 because it speaks of how big God is. He creates everything. The earth is a, is a mere ottoman for him, a footstool. And he underscores that God is looking, what he's looking for in the hearts of his people. And it says in, in verse um, two, to whom... Does God look with stunning clarity? We learn that God regards what he regards and what he looks for in your life. And it's three things. Humility. Humility. Realizing by the way you think and the way you live, he's God and I'm not. I'm a pauper and he's the king. And I bow before him in humble obedience because I will always have to answer to him. And then contrition, a sense of brokenness. 
It's what we see in Psalm 51 when David pours out his heart after his sin with Bathsheba. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Humility, contrition. And then notice what it says in verse 2. The last thing, he trembles at my word. That our utmost respect is given to what God has said in his word. And mockers snicker at messages like this. What is our rightful response when we hear the word of God and the call to turn to Christ? Well, he should have been clearer. He should have been more understanding. He should have done it differently. He will sure, surely understand that I've given it him, his, my best and he'll understand that the good in my life will outweigh the bad. And as lovingly as I can say it, no, he won't. Because God has spoken in these last days through his son and we're to look to him. Mocker, snicker at this message. I pray that you, you would not but that in humility you would receive it and in contrition it would bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness and that you would be a man, a woman of God who trembles at his word all the days of your life. Because it's God speaking. Would you bow with me in prayer? Jared is gonna come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. But this message today is really a call to turn to Christ to believe in him and will proclaim that message through the Lord's Supper.